Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, coming to you from behind the orange curtain today. Uh, making through the broadcast from my office and uh, glad to be with you. We are now in October, which is the month of the Holy Rosary, and we are in the final days of the Marian year proclaimed by Pope Francis for October 2021 through October 2022. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the venerable devotion to Mary known as the Holy Rosary, its origins and what it means to Catholics today and has throughout history. Also, while Catholics most certainly do not embrace um, the false doctrines of Scripture alone or uh, sola fide, salvation by faith alone, there are several important issues for which fundamentalist Christians take a lot of heat in our culture that are really um, things that Catholics can or, or should agree with them on. And so later we'll look at five things that the fundamentalists get right and that Catholics should take seriously again. Also, we will examine a priest's challenge for all Catholics regarding the Sunday obligation. So lots to do today. I'll hopefully get to it all. But to begin, we have been bouncing back and forth between the ordinary form and the extraordinary form calendars for our weekly scripture readings. And this past Sunday's ordinary form gospel was the gospel from the extraordinary form that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. So rather than repeating that, uh, I, I'd like to unpack the Old Testament reading from Sunday's Mass in the Ordinary Form, which is a reading from 2 Kings chapter 5, and it's about the cure of Naaman the Aramean. And to put it in context, uh, 2 Kings 5 verse 1 says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, that's Syria, was considered a great man by his king and was highly respected because through Naaman the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was also a man of courage, but he was a leper. So Naaman was a great hero and a very important person, but he had contracted leprosy, which was one of the most feared diseases of the time. And some forms were extremely contagious and in many cases incurable. Now Naaman's wife had a servant girl who was a captive from Israel, and the servant girl said, if your husband Naaman would go to the prophet in Samaria, he would be cured of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king of Syria what the girl had said, and the king replied, go, and I will give you a letter to take to the king of Israel. So Aram, or uh, Syria, was Israel's neighbor to the northeast, but the two nations were rarely on friendly terms. Under David, Aram paid tribute to Israel. But now in Elisha's day, Aram was growing in power and frequently conducted raids on Israel, and Israelite captives were often taken back to Syria, hence Naaman's servant girl being such an Israelite. And ironically, Naaman's only hope of being cured of his leprosy would come from Israel. So Naaman set off with 30,000 pieces of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 costly vestments along with his letter from his king to the king of Israel, which said, I am sending my servant Naaman to you. Would you cure him of his leprosy? 
Now, when the king of Israel read this letter, he was afraid, and he tore his clothes, and he said, does the king of Syria think I'm God with power over life and death? And he concluded he must be trying to pick a fight with me, right, by asking him to do the impossible. Yeah, and, and by the way, leprosy is very serious, and in its worst forms, you know, in the ancient world, could lead to death. But the Hebrew word that's translated leprosy is really a generic term for uh, skin diseases. Now, wh whether, you know, true leprosy or what we call Hansen's disease or perhaps some lesser ailment. And many of the modern commentaries suggest that Naaman had some lesser disease. But I would argue that it's more likely that Naaman suffered from true leprosy because both the servant girl and Jehoram, the king of Israel, seemed to think that only a miracle could cure him. And hence the reason some modern commentators incline toward the other, I think, is because it's easier to explain away the miracle if he just had some lesser disease. In any case, as soon as Elisha the prophet heard what had happened, he sent the king a message. He said to him, why did you tear your clothes? Send the man to me so that he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha didn't even come out to speak with him. He sent out one of his servants to tell Naaman, go and wash seven times in the Jordan and you'll be cured. But Naaman stormed off angry. Why couldn't the prophet himself come out and talk to me, he says. I, I thought for sure that he would stand before me and pray to the Lord his God with grand words and make grand gestures and I'd be healed. He said, are there no rivers in Damascus? They're just as good as any river in Israel. Why couldn't I have washed in them and be cured? But then, and notice, you know, once again, it's his servants. It's a servant that goes over to him and says, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, you would have done it. So why don't you do what he said? Go wash and be cured. And again, Naaman was a great hero. He was a proud man, and he expected to get the royal treatment. He considered himself to be a very important person who just happened to have leprosy. And he was outraged when Elisha treated him like a leper who just happened to be a very important person. You know, to wash in a great river would be one thing, but to wash in the Jordan, to, to come all that way, Naaman thought that's beneath a man of his position. But his servant, a humble person, pointed out that if the prophet had sent him on some noble quest, right, climb the highest mountain or cross the widest desert, he'd have leapt into the saddle and been off like a shot. And he says, you know, but because he asked you to do something simple instead, why, why not just do what he asked? And so the Old Testament reading for the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time says, Naaman went down and plunged into the Jordan seven times at the words of Elisha, the man of God. His flesh became again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean of his leprosy. Naaman returned with his whole retinue to the man of God. On his arrival, he stood before Elisha and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. Elisha replied, As the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not take it. And despite Naaman's urging, he still refused. Naaman said, If you will not accept, please let me, your servant, have two mule, lords, mule loads of earth, for I will no longer offer holocaust or sacrifice to any god 
except to the Lord. The word of the Lord. So Naaman had to humble himself and obey Elisha's commands in order to be healed. And this is an illustration of how obedience to God begins with humility. Notice that it was the servants, right? It was the humble who were the agents of grace in this story. And like them, we must believe that God's way is better than our way. Even though we may not always understand his ways, it is through humble obedience that we will receive his blessings. We must remember that while God's ways are not our ways, God's ways are best. And God wants our obedience before anything else. You know, he gave us free will so that we could show our love by choosing to serve him, by making that free choice. Jesus himself said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And, and of course, God can use anything to accomplish his purposes. You remember, Naaman left in a huff because the cure for his disease seemed too simple. Being a hero, uh, he expected a heroic cure. And because he was full of pride and preferred his own self-will to God's will, he couldn't accept the simple cure of washing in the Jordan. Now, obviously, this is an Old Testament type of the sacrament of baptism. What Naaman had to do to have his leprosy washed away is similar to what we must do to have our sin washed away. And it begins with humbly accepting God's mercy. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, says our Lord. But sometimes people react to Christ's offer of forgiveness in the same way as Naaman. You know, just to get some water sprinkled on you while somebody says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and somehow doesn't seem significant enough to really wash away the guilt of sin and, and provide entrance into eternal life. But we know what really happens, that the sacraments actually accomplish what they symbolize. But on the surface, to submit to this simple washing doesn't seem like some epic event. And that's the message of Naaman's cure by the prophet Elisha. Don't let your reaction to the way of faith keep you from the cure that you need the most. And also, Elisha refused Naaman's gold and silver and vestments to show that the grace of God cannot be bought. That's the sin of simony. And in the ancient world, uh, people believed that you could only worship uh, a god on the native soil of the land that he you know, uh, serves or controls. And so Naaman asked for the soil of Israel so he could worship the god of Israel after he returned home to Syria. Now, he had the right idea. And we're going to talk later about the importance of worship to our salvation. And finally, our money, like Naaman's, is going to be useless when we die. When we go to judgment and stand before God, it doesn't matter how much wealth or fame or honor we have accumulated in this life. That's going to evaporate before the throne of judgment. It's only going to be the grace won by our Lord Jesus Christ on the Holy Cross and our cooperation with that grace, our obedience of faith that will save us, not our bank accounts or the number of followers we have on social media or any other worldly thing. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we return, we're going to be talking about the Holy Rosary, the history of it. Also, later on, some things that... Uh, You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic. We'll be right back after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. October is the month of the rosary. On the 7th of October, which was last week, we celebrated the feast of uh, the rosary, Our Lady of the Rosary, which was originally Our Lady of Victory, but it was always connected with the rosary because the victory in question was the Battle of Lepanto, um, where the um, Catholic League fleet um, defeated the Muslim fleet there off the coast of Greece, and it was due to the um, Rosary Crusade led by Pope St. Pius V. So October, the whole month, is dedicated to the Rosary. And if you have read my book or you know my my story, you'll know that the Rosary was instrumental in my conversion to Catholicism and that it's been my constant companion ever since. Uh, as both a, a devotee of the Rosary and a medievalist, I've done a certain amount of research into the devotion. I want to share some of the fruits of that with you now. And we'll probably talk again next week about the rosary, looking at the mysteries and, and some other aspects. But I wanted to start with the history of it. And and to mention, first off, that the rosary, as we know it, developed over time. It's most associated with St. Dominic in the 13th century, who had been unsuccessful in his efforts to convert the Albigensian heretics in, in France. And so he went into the woods and prayed and fasted for three days and was rewarded with a vision of Mary. And she instructed him, if you want to be successful, preach my Psalter. And and that's the original uh, name for the rosary was Mary's Psalter, or the poor man's breviary, because it began as a way for the common folk to unite their prayers with the divine office, which is, you know, built around the Psalter, or a.k.a. the Book of Psalms. So there's 150 Psalms, hence the 150 Hail Marys. Now, the big challenge of repeating a prayer 150 times is keeping track. So a way was devised to keep count of the prayers. Folks would put 10 little objects, uh, you know, dried peas or beans or small pebbles, into a bowl. And with each Ave, they would transfer them one at a time into an empty bowl, and then back and forth for each mystery. And that way you can concentrate on the mysteries and not counting uh, the beads, right? And... In time, those little pellets were strung together in a circle and called a chaplet, which originally referred to a garland of flowers worn on the head like a crown. So saying the rosary was considered to be offering a a garland of prayers, a crown of spiritual roses to Our Lady. And FYI, just to let you know how common the practice was in the Middle Ages, in England, those little pellets came to be known as beads, which was the medieval English word for prayer. Beads are called beads because of the rosary. And so when you read some older book of Catholic piety and it describes an old woman at the church door telling her beads, that literally means saying her prayers. Okay, So that's one way in which the rosary developed. Another is the Hail Mary itself. If you read the section on prayer from the catechetical instructions of St. Thomas Aquinas, you will discover that his treatment of the angelical salutation, which is the, you know, what was they called the Hail Mary, only includes the words of Scripture. The words of the angel, hail full of grace, the Lord is with thee, um, you know, so hence angelic salutation, and blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. So it's a combination of Luke 1, 28 and 42. But he didn't include the second half of the prayer. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. So why and when were those words added? 
Well, firstly, over time, people added the words Mary and Jesus to the angelical salutation, uh, you know, the words of Scripture, presumably to make it clear who was being spoken of in each case. But that second half wasn't added until the 16th century. And I suspect it was, uh, in part at least, a reaction to the revival of the ancient heresy of Nestorius that was being preached by certain Protestants. You know, Nestorius denied the divine maternity of Mary. He said that uh, Mary was just the mother of the human nature of Jesus, but not his, his you know, but not the mother of, of God. So, uh, like Jesus had two persons as opposed to the two natures in the one divine person. And so in the year 431, the Council of Ephesus defined that first Marian dogma, Theotokos, or God-bearer, mother of God. Now, another thing that the Protestants rejected is the communion of saints. And both doctrines are represented in the words, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. So originally, the rosary consisted of 150 angelical salutations broken into 15 decades or groups of 10. And at some point, the Our Father was added before each decade. And I suspect this has to do with a private revelation that was, it's variously ascribed, but it was quite popular, whether it was originally given to St. Bernard of Clairvaux or, or St. Gertrude or some other saint. Uh, lots of spiritual writers like Richard Roll in England, for example, wrote about this revelation, which is that our Lord suffered 5,475 wounds in his bitter passion. All right, so if you count up all the blows and, and the, the scourging and everything that happened to Jesus, 5,475 wounds. And anybody who's seen the Passion of the Christ can believe it, right? Well, here's the thing. If you divide 5,475 by 365, you get 15. Therefore, anybody who said 15 Our Fathers every day in honor of the Passion would, in a year's time, have said one prayer for every single one of our Lord's wounds. And that would make it natural to add the Our Father to the beginning of each of the 15 decades of the Rosary. Now, over time, other prayers have been added as well. Uh, in The Secret of the Rosary by St. Louis de Montfort, uh, he commends uh, this, what at the time he called a new practice, of adding the Glory Be to the end of each decade. And he considered it a good thing, I think, because it brought the rosary into further conformity with the liturgy of the church, right? If it's Our Lady's Psalter, the, you know, and the, and the Gloria Patri is recited after each of the Psalms in the divine office, and so you would do it uh, after the Hail Marys, or after the decades, rather, of the divine office. Uh, and then likewise, the introductory prayers, the Apostles' Creed, the Our Father, three Hail Marys for an increase of faith, hope, and charity, and then a glory be. These were all later additions. Uh, many people today also pray the Fatima prayer, so-called, after each decade, which only dates back to you know the apparition of Our Lady of Fatima back in 1917. Oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, and lead all souls to heaven, especially those most in need of thy mercy. Now, it might interest you to know that according to the official Handbook of Indulgences, to gain the rosary indulgence, you have to meditate on the mysteries, but you only need to pray the Our Fathers and Hail Marys. No other prayers are necessary. 
and and customs differ from one country to another. And so they suggest that you just follow the local custom. Uh, but really, only the, only the Our Fathers and Hail Marys are strictly necessary for gaining the indulgence. And speaking of mysteries, we normally associate the term rosary with the 15 mysteries connected with St. Dominic. But there's also uh, what's called the Franciscan crown, where you recite seven uh, groups of decades in honor of Mary's seven joys. And then we have the Servite Rosary, which consists of seven groups of seven Hail Marys in honor of Our Lady's seven sorrows. These are considered variations of the rosary. Uh, in any case, the, the 15 mysteries uh, have remained essentially the same since the 13th century, with a couple of exceptions. We think of the fourth glorious mystery as the Assumption, and in the fifth as the Coronation. But in my research into the primary documents from the Middle Ages, the fourth glorious mystery was often identified as the Dormition of Mary. And uh, Dormition means to fall asleep. That's St. Paul's uh, euphemism for death in the New Testament. It talks about, you know, many of the brothers have fallen asleep. That's uh, his term for uh, death. But this doesn't mean that medieval Catholics didn't believe in the Assumption. On the contrary, the fifth glorious mystery is the coronation of Mary, if you will pardon the pun, assumes the Assumption. Because, you know, we know that Mary is being crowned in heaven. It's not, it's not a, a spiritual crowning of her soul, but she's in heaven, body and soul. She was assumed into heaven. And so that's, that's assumed, again, if you will, by the coronation. So why the change? Now, once again, I don't have hard facts on this. It could be that the mystery changed because the Protestants rejected the assumption. Um, and also, while the Dormition is traditional, some theologians came to believe that Mary didn't die, but was assumed into heaven like Enoch or Elias while she was still alive. And since there's no revelation on this particular point, there are, there are still conflicting theological opinions. Now, I will tell you that the you know the traditional um, teaching is that she did die and then was assumed body and soul into heaven. So, And I think that makes the most sense because clearly Our Lady would have wanted to experience everything that our Lord experienced, and we know that our Lord died and then rose again. Um, but in any case, um, while Saint, or when St. Pius Twelfth made the doctrine of the Assumption into the dogma of the Assumption in 1950, they have to have an official definition. And he just kind of sidestepped the controversy by saying that Mary was assumed, quote, at the end of her earthly sojourn without mentioning whether she died or not. Um, another medieval source that I discovered names the Dormition of Mary as the fourth glorious mystery, but makes the fifth glorious mystery the last judgment. So even the mysteries have either developed over time or at the very least admit of local variations. Which brings us to the Luminous Mysteries, introduced by St. John Paul II in 2002. And I think, and again, we're going to talk about this in, in more detail, I think, next week. But, you know, for centuries, the Rosary officially had three sets of mystery. Joyful, sorrowful, glorious, 150 Aves for the 150 Psalms. And then in 2002, Pope John Paul II introduced the Luminous Mysteries which focus on the earthly ministry of Christ. Let's see, I've got it here. It's the, uh, the baptism in the Jordan, the wedding at Cana, the proclamation of the kingdom, 
the Transfiguration, and then the institution of the Eucharist, these very significant uh, events during the public ministry of our Lord. Now, lots of folks got upset about the addition because they felt that John Paul was trying to change the rosary, quote-unquote. And Catholic retailers who sell rosary products certainly did nothing to dissuade them from that opinion, because suddenly there was a rash of updated rosary materials, you know, which is understandable, I guess. I mean, the words new and improved are like crack cocaine for advertising. And, um, you know, how often can you use the words new and improved when you're talking about, you know, an ancient faith? But if you read Rosarium Virginis Maria, if you actually read the Pope's document, you'll find that John Paul II did no such thing. First, you will discover that he identifies the traditional 15 mysteries as the rosary and recommends his luminous mysteries as a suitable option. In other words, John Paul II introduced a new chaplet, but he did not change the rosary. Things that Catholics need to remember. All that when we return right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about the rosary, and now I want to share with you, this is an, um, a list that was published on the Church Pop website um, back in 2018, I think, uh, and it's five reasons why Mary should reign as queen of your heart. You know, just last May, we talked about um, why devotion to Mary is uh, key to your salvation, of course, and that's got to be, uh, you know, the overarching reason. But, um, why should you devote yourself to the Blessed Virgin Mary? Uh, good time to talk about this in the final days of the Marian year proclaimed by Pope Francis and during the month of October, which is devoted to the Rosary. And the first reason on the list is that many great saints devoted their hearts to Mary. Now, you know, the Church canonizes uh, certain individuals precisely so that they can be models for us. And there are countless saints who were devoted to the Blessed Virgin. Uh, just a few examples. St. Louis de Montfort wrote uh, many books in honor of the Blessed Mother, was a great promoter of the Holy Rosary. He wrote uh, True Devotion to Mary, Secret of the Rosary, Secret of Mary. And he said the greatest saints, those richest in grace and virtue, will be the most assiduous in praying to the Most Blessed Virgin and looking up to her as the perfect model to imitate and is a powerful helper helper to assist them. So she's the model of models, if you will. St. Therese of Lisieux, doctor of the church, said, In trial or difficulty, I have recourse to Mother Mary, whose glance alone is enough to dissipate every fear. Padre Pio, St. Pio of Petrolcina, great mystic and Franciscan stigmatist, he said, let us bind ourselves tightly to the sorrowful heart of our Heavenly Mother and reflect on its boundless grief and how precious is our soul. You know, they say that Padre Pio prayed the rosary all day and he died repeating the names Jesus and Mary. And of course, you have my favorite Saint Bernard of Clairvaux who composed many beautiful Marian hymns and prayers, including the Ave Maria Stellas and the Memorare. Remember, O Most Gracious Virgin Mary, etc. 
And he also added the final words to the Salve Regina, O Clemens, O Pia, O Dulcis Virgo Maria, O Clement, O Loving, O Sweet Virgin Mary. So that's number one, the example of the saints. Another reason to be devoted to Mary is that Jesus himself gave her to us to be our mother. It was his final parting gift from the cross that he would put his mother into the hands of St. John when he said, well, it's, the scripture says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So St. John represents all of us at the foot of the cross. So we should make a home for Mary in our homes and to understand that she is our spiritual mother as well. Number three, Mary is mediatrix of all graces. Second Vatican Council in the document Lumen Gentium said, in suffering with him as he died on the cross, she cooperated it in the work of the Savior in an altogether singular way by obedience, faith, hope, and burning love to restore supernatural life to souls. As a result, Mary is our mother in the order of grace. Pope Leo XIII explained that the power put into her hands is all but unlimited. Pius X said that Mary is, quote, the dispensatrix of all the gifts that our Savior purchased for us by his death and by his blood. And he quotes Bernardine of Siena saying, Mary is the neck of our head by which he communicates to his mystical body all his spiritual gifts. So we're the, we're the body of Christ. Christ is the head. Mary is the neck. Connects the two. Now these popes and, and the, the council were all following St. Bernard of Clairvaux in teaching that Jesus wants to give us everything through the hands of Mary. And how incredible are the graces that we can receive from our most holy and blessed mother especially, and this is number four, that she leads us to Jesus. When, we're, when we are devoted to Mary, our love for Jesus increases because her greatest desire is to lead us to him. When Our Lady appeared to Mother Mariana of Jesus 400 years ago down in Quito, Ecuador, and she commissioned a statue to be made of herself, and she said, in my left hand, tell the sculptor to place a statue of the infant Jesus. He says, so that men will know how powerful I am in bringing them to him. St. Louis de Montfort said, all our perfection consists in being conformed, united, and consecrated to Jesus Christ. And therefore, the most perfect of all devotions is without any doubt that which most perfectly conforms, unites, and consecrates us to Jesus Christ. Now, Mary being the most conformed of all creatures to Jesus Christ. It follows that of all devotions, that which most concentrates and conforms the soul to our Lord is devotion to his Holy Mother, and that the more a soul is consecrated to Mary, the more it is consecrated to Jesus. Number five, she is our perfect pathway to holiness. Like Louis de Montfort just said, all our perfection consists in being conformed, united, and consecrated to Jesus Christ. And Mary's ability to bring us closer to her Son draws us to greater holiness, because she was without sin. Pope Paul 
makes the uh, polystics makes the connection because he said in in lumen gentium while in the most holy virgin the church has already reached that perfection whereby she is without spot or wrinkle the followers of christ will strive to increase in holiness by conquering sin and so they turn their eyes to mary who shines forth to the whole community of the elect as the model of virtues Right, that's the the presentation of Mary in Lumen Gentium in Vatican II is as the great model of Christians. So, with all this said, you know, and there are so many ways that we can devote ourselves to our Blessed Mother. Obviously, we can pray the Rosary, like we just talked about. Uh, you can pray the Angelus, uh, traditionally three times a day, six, twelve, and six. You can practice devotion to the seven sorrows or make the five Saturdays devotion. Or you consecrate yourself to Jesus through Mary via the total consecration um, of St. Louis de Montfort or uh, Father Michael Gately's 33 Days to Morning Glory. We've done both, and and so can you. And, And the list goes on. And I would just say, if you don't already practice some devotion to Mary, I would ask you to consider making a resolution to begin one of those devotions today because it will certainly change your life. It will bring you closer to Jesus. And by the way, if you're listening on the app, the rosary begins right after this program, so stay tuned. And if you're not listening on the app, I highly recommend that you get it. We, uh, you know, I was talking to the IT folks, which is my wife, uh, (laughs) and we discovered recently that the, the Apple podcasts are not being updated and Google podcasts are not being updated. And we've uh, spoken to them about it apparently and done the investigation. And there is no logical explanation as to why it's not happening. I don't know if it's diabolical um, or if it's just the, the fact that uh, uh, the computers are <laughs> diabolical or, or what it is. But if you want to for sure get our podcast, even though we are ostensibly on all the podcast platforms, via Apple and Google, uh, if there's, you know, if they're throwing up some kind of stumbling block, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but, you know, uh, it is awfully strange that uh, those two big, um, you know, podcast platforms are suddenly not updating the Terry and Jesse show. It makes me suspicious that the content may have something to do with it. In any case, if you download the Virgin Most Powerful Radio iPhone smartphone app, you know, iPhone or, or, uh, uh, whatever, what's the other kind? Android, thank you. Um, if you have one of these smartphones, you will be able to download our app, and then you will always have access to our daily podcasts. And so I recommend that you do that. All right. Um, moving on. Speaking of, I, I was looking at some old articles, and, and something that I ran across way back in 2014, um, and, and still just as timely today as ever, and maybe even more so, uh, given uh, what's going on with the synod on synodality, and I'll make that connection for you in a minute. But uh, there's an article by Brantley Milligan, and it was called Where Fundamentalists Are Right, Five Things Catholics Need to Take Seriously Again. Now, uh, the term fundamentalist is you know, used as a pejorative these days. It's used to label someone uh, as an you know, irrational religious extremist of some kind. You know, uh, Muslim terrorists are fundamentalists, for example. But a hundred years ago, the term was taken as a badge of honor by theologically conservative Protestants to distinguish themselves from liberal Protestantism. 
And while the liberal Protestants in the mainline denominations were, you know, denying basic teachings like the authority of the Bible and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, among others, conservative Protestants called for going back to the fundamentals of the faith, hence the term. Now, obviously, there's a lot of issues on which Catholics and fundamentalists disagree. And some of them are, are important issues, okay? Sola fide, sola scriptura, and so on. But there are also some important issues for which our fundamentalist brethren take a lot of heat in our culture that Catholics actually agree with them on, or at least should. You know, um, it's interesting that uh, Peter Kreeft and Father Michelli in their book, um, uh, The Handbook of Christian Apologetics, he points out uh, the five fundamentals and says, if this is it, you know, if, if all if all it means to be a fundamentalist is to is to uh, embrace these things, is that then Catholics are fundamentalists. See, the problem is, of course, um, we're not fundamentalists in the way that the term is employed today. And many Catholics, in my experience, are afraid to have themselves labeled a fundamentalist, and they can wind up throwing the baby out with the bathwater and end up denying beliefs espoused by fundamentalists that are also taught by the Catholic Church. So when we come back, we're going to talk about five things that are present in the Catholic faith that Catholics could learn from their fundamentalist brothers and sisters to take more seriously. All right. And that when we come back, gosh, this uh, this uh, set fast for me. I hope it's going fast for you, too. We'll be back with more right after this. Stay with us. Oh, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about five things uh, where the fundamentalists are right and five things that Catholics need to take seriously again. First off is the authority of the literal sense of Scripture. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Now, is that a crazy fundamentalist thing to believe? Well, I should hope not because it's a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church which in turn is quoting the Second Vatican Council. You see, like the fundamentalists, the Catholic Church teaches that God is the author of sacred scripture, whole and entire with all its parts. And therefore, the inspired books teach the truth. All right, that's the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 105 and 107. But, someone would ask, don't fundamentalists take the Bible too literally? Well, I would say it's not a problem of taking it literally, but perhaps literalistically. And Catholics disagree with fundamentalists on various passages of Scripture. That is how they should be properly interpreted. But we agree with the fundamentalists that the Bible must be taken literally. Yes, we recognize that Scripture can have spiritual meanings, allegorical, moral, anagogical. You have to look at historical context. You have to look at the genre. But beyond <clears throat> these meanings that are beyond the literal meaning, as the Catechism makes clear, must be based on the literal and that goes all the way back to St. Thomas Aquinas. Number two, something that uh, Catholics could do well to remember, is the reality of sin and hell. Sin, judgment, repentance, the wrath of God, demons, eternal damnation, hell. All these things are just, they seem too negative, don't they? Don't they? That just seems very fundamentalist. 
And, you know, you might not be surprised to discover that those things were removed, edited out from the readings and the orations from the Mass when they um, did the, the Novus Ordo. Because according to Concilium, according to those who, who did the editing, no one should have a cause to feel uncomfortable at Holy Mass. And I know that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted, but he also came to afflict the comfortable. But they would said they have to remove anything that would represent a shadow of a stumbling block to our separated brethren, that is the Protestants. right? So the removal of the negative theology, sin and judgment and the wrath of God and so on, um, that was undertaken as an ecumenical gesture. But I would suggest to you they were trying to please the wrong Protestants. <laughs> because fundamentalists, you know, they take a lot of heat for preaching about the reality of sin and the, the seriousness of its consequences, you know, for souls. And Catholics might find themselves wanting to reassure others that they don't believe in such scary nonsense. But Catholics are wrong to do that because the fundamentalists are right. Without Christ, we are dead in sin and by nature children of wrath. Those are the words of St. Paul to the Ephesians. The first message of Christ's own ministry was repent and believe in the gospel. On Pentecost, St. Peter preached to the crowds, save yourself from this crooked generation. Now, if, these, if you're Catholic and these messages sound strange or unfamiliar or too negative or too harsh, I would say that's an indictment of modern Catholic preaching and catechetics and liturgy. I've spoken before about you know, certain Catholic prelates teaching that hell is empty or that no one goes there. Well, I can tell you right now, they don't get that idea from divine revelation because Jesus talked more about hell than anyone in the New Testament, and he talked about hell more than he did about heaven. You know, Catholics don't need to start carrying signs in public places, you know, that warn about sin and judgment and the wrath of God and eternal damnation. But we certainly need to believe in those things. And our clergy need to preach about those things. And our catechists need to teach about those things. Because, you know, sin and judgment and repentance and God's wrath and demons and eternal damnation and hell, because to deny those things is to deny reality. Right now we're involved in the synod on synodality. Right, and they're sending out questionnaires. Do you suppose any of those questions had anything to do with that list that I just rattled off? When they want to know, gee, what, what's the problem in the church? What's the problem in the world? What's the problem? Okay, it's the sin, stupid. <laughs> and what's the answer? It's the gospel. We don't need, uh, uh, you know, th th there's no need for a new message. You don't have to, there's no need for a new paradigm. The truth is the truth. And speaking of the truth, uh, the third item on the list is the absolute unicity of Jesus for salvation. Unicity, that means unique and unequaled, unparalleled. Point is, Jesus is the only way to God. Once again, with apologies to, to some of our, uh, our episcopate, Jesus isn't one way. He's not the best way. He's not the preferred way. He is the only way. No exceptions. Now, am I saying only Catholics go to heaven? No. What I'm saying is that no one goes to heaven except by the graces won by Jesus Christ on the Holy Cross, period. Now, is that narrow-minded or fanatical or fundamentalist? Well, it's the express teaching of Jesus himself. 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's John 3.18, right? We all love John 3.16. Well, this is, that's what comes right after it. There is one mediator between God and men, said St. Paul to Timothy, the man Christ Jesus. And in the words of Peter in, in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, if there's any question of the Catholic Church's stance on this issue, that last verse from Acts is actually quoted at the very top of the first page of the prologue of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Pick up a catechism, the first words you read is that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under the name under heaven given among men by which, by which we must be saved. Number four, something else that Catholics need to start taking seriously again is the second coming. Now, Catholics don't believe that it's possible to predict the day or the hour because Jesus said it's not. You know, we don't know when the second coming is going to happen. And we, and we don't believe in the rapture. We don't think that the really real Christians are going to disappear before the tribulation begins, left behind style. But in rejecting those things, let's not forget what we say in the Nicene Creed every Sunday. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. There will be a second coming of Christ. The Catechism teaches that since the ascension, Christ's coming in glory has been imminent and could be accomplished at any moment. I remember years ago seeing a button in a, in a uh, store that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> but that's just it. Following Scripture, the Catechism says that before Christ's second coming, the Church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take the form of the last judgment after the final upheaval of this passing world. And that's no nonsense. Jesus is coming again. And finally, the things that, that, that fundamentalists believe and Catholics need to take seriously again is a willingness to be fools for Christ. Sometimes our fundamentalist friends are scorned for beliefs that Catholics agree with. Other times for beliefs that, that we would agree with their critics about. But either way, one thing is clear. Many of our fundamentalist friends are not ashamed to stand for what they sincerely believe God has revealed, even if it means they look foolish to others. Oh, if Catholics were to have such faith, we believe that our faith has been revealed to us by God and faithfully preserved in the Church by the Holy Spirit. But do we take it seriously? Or are we worried that, that, uh, that uh, non-Christians or, or liberal Christians will think we're stupid? And this brings us back to Naaman and, and the secret to his cure and what St. Bernard said about the three secrets of holiness. The three secrets of holiness, he said, are humility, humility, and humility. And if we're more worried about looking stupid to the world rather than being faithful to God, how smart are we really? Let's you know, listen to St. Paul's exhortation to the church in Corinth. Where is the one who is wise? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll give the last word to Mr. Mulligan from his uh, article. He said, with confidence in God's word, let us Catholics go out to all the world and preach the gospel. Amen. And that's no nonsense. Okay, um, I had mentioned at the top of the show that we were going to talk about worship at Sunday Mass and how our salvation depends upon it. Obviously, we're not going to have time to do that this week, so we will talk about that when we come again or come back again next week. Also, talk more about the Holy Rosary, dive into the mysteries and into uh, uh, some other aspects of the Rosary during this month of October, uh, the month of the Holy Rosary. And also, I wanted to take just a moment. First off, to encourage you once again to get the iPhone app, the Virgin Most Powerful Radio app, you can go to our website, which is vmpr.org, and um, download it from there. It's free, and as long as you have a smartphone, you can download the app, and uh, also all our shows are available on the website. But they're, they're actually podcast slash broadcast live on the app every day and then they're archived there as well. So you can go into the app and, and click listen now for the live shows, uh, or you can go on the icon that says podcasts and pick your favorite program and listen uh, until your ears bleed <laughs> because we archive the shows there for your convenience. And that is absolutely the best way. There's also, there's a lot of great stuff on the app as well. There's prayers and um access to various documents and whatnot. So check out the Virgin Most Powerful Radio app. Check out our website, vmpr.org. And while you're at the website, you might notice a button there on the front page that says Donate. And so this is a not-so-subtle suggestion that uh, if you like what you hear on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, if it's benefiting you in some way, and if the Lord has blessed you sufficiently that you can uh, send some money our way as well as your prayers, we would greatly appreciate it. We are listed. We don't have uh, uh, any sugar daddies. We're not uh, being supported by uh, by the church, certainly. Uh, we, we're just a, a lay apostolate, and so we are responsible for our own funding, and that comes from your generosity. So thanks for listening. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for considering making a, a donation or even becoming a monthly donor. And until next time, bless you and your family.